Thanks for listening to another message from Life Christian Church. We hope it challenges and encourages you and helps you to grow in your faith. Don't forget, download our app to stay up to date with what's going on at Life. Share your prayer requests or pray for others. Read the Bible online and much, much more. Simply search for Life Christian Church in your app store. The question I ask you this morning is, do you have a Hosanna? Do you have a Hosanna within you? Do you have a position before God that says, God, doesn't matter what life brings, I'm secure because I'm found in you. Hosanna. I can't imagine trying to navigate the challenges of life without having that Hosanna connect point. Without understanding and without knowing that there is a God who is greater than me. There is a God who is bigger than my circumstances. There is a, a, a God who transcends my understanding. Which means I don't have to have everything worked out. I don't have to have everything nailed. That I can just say, God, I trust you with my unknowing. I trust you with my uncertainty. I trust you with my fears. I trust you with my failures. And if you don't have that assurance and that security and that, that, that sense of strength that comes from that, because it's not a sign of weakness to reach out in faith and say, God, I'm just trusting you in the joys and in the struggles. It's actually a sign of strength to say, God, I need to find your courage. I need to find your strength. I need to find your wisdom in life's circumstances, your hope. So today is Palm Sunday and at the end of the message today, I'm just going to pray a simple prayer which invites you to discover your Hosanna. To be able to say, Jesus, I, I, I need you to come and fill a void that is there right now. Because the Bible says God has set eternity in the hearts of men. That means there's a void inside each of one of us that can only be filled by a Hosanna. That can only be filled by a sense of the presence of God within me, the knowledge of God within me, the hope of God within me, that assurance, that comfort, that certainty that comes as we are honest enough with ourselves and with God to say, God, I, I truly need you. So that's the challenge. Be open to that challenge. Luke 19 and 37, when Jesus came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. Friends, today is the commencement of what we traditionally call the Easter week. Holy week. It begins on Palm Sunday today, which is the day that Jesus comes into Jerusalem, the triumphal procession. Then it ends on what we call Good Friday, where Jesus was crucified as a common criminal. Jesus begins the week as a hero, but he ends the week 
as a criminal condemned to die in the hands of the Roman authorities in Jerusalem. And it's interesting that 25 chapters of the Gospels, that's nearly a third of the content in the Gospels, is totally devoted to these six days. So it's important. And we read about Jesus' arrival into Jerusalem, but what we sometimes don't know is this, that Jesus only ever visited Jerusalem once or twice. The vast majority of his ministry was in Galilee. So his arrival in Jerusalem was quite a significant event because it was not somewhere that he frequented. Most of Jesus' ministry took place in Galilee. But in saying that, very early on in the ministry of Jesus, the Bible tells us that his face was set towards Jerusalem. We read in Luke 9 and 51, As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. Now we read those words and we think that it's actually in the context of the Easter story narrative, but it's not. This is Luke 9. This is actually early on in the ministry of Jesus. It took, takes another 10 chapters for him to get there. So it is embedded in the purpose of Jesus that his face was set towards Jerusalem. So we've got three years of his public ministry basically spent around Galilee. But the intent and the purpose for which Jesus had come was totally fulfilled in Jerusalem. And when he arrived in Jerusalem, here is this royal, royal welcome. Luke 19.37, the whole crowd began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And all four Gospels record this kind of euphoria that broke out in the city as Jesus came into Jerusalem. Now, I wonder if this was kind of a moment for the disciples where they're going, yes, finally. Here is this groundswell of adoration. Here is this groundswell, Jesus. This is it. This is it. Now you're going to have this huge public platform. Now we can ride the, the crest of the wave of popularity and the recognition that you've deserved for so long. Here it is at last. I, I, I'd be really, really certain. They're the kinds of things that the disciples would have been feeling and perhaps saying. At last, Jesus can finally set up his kingdom here in Jerusalem. And while we have this crowd shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest on the Sunday. Just a few days later, that same crowd are yelling, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. The crowds were calling for the death of the very same person they were claiming to be a hero just a few days earlier. How did that happen? Luke 23 and 23. With loud shouts, 
they insistently demanded that he be crucified and their shouts prevailed. So what had happened between Hosanna and crucify him? What, what took place in that short time? Well, Jesus had been betrayed. He'd been denied. He'd been deserted even by his own disciples. And then we fast forward to the cross and Jesus is hanging on the cross and dies essentially alone. So what happened during that week? How could a a hero on Sunday be crucified in response to the overwhelming demand of the crowd on Friday? Well, the first thing Jesus did when he arrives in Jerusalem was to go to the temple. And maybe this gives us a bit of a clue. Luke 19.45, he entered the temple area and began to drive out those who were selling. It is written, he said to them, my house will be a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of robbers. Now, it's stating the obvious to suggest that that's not going to win friends and influence people. And I have absolutely no question that there was nothing about the behaviour of the crowd in the way that they turned against Jesus that would have taken Jesus by surprise at all. In fact, I'm certain he fully anticipated it. And it's really interesting because one of the last stories, one of the last parables that Jesus tells before he arrived in Jerusalem goes something like this. And he, he talked about a noble guy in a certain town. So he was a man of influence, a man of power. To consolidate that power, he traveled to a far off country to be appointed king so that he would carry that title of king over the region that he had authority over. So before he departs to go to a foreign place to be appointed king, He calls his servants and he gives to his servants various different amounts of money and he gives them instruction as to how they were to be responsible for that and then he left. But when he left to visit a foreign place to be appointed king, the people in his absence actually sent a message to arrive ahead of him saying, we don't want this man to rule over us. We will not have this man king. We don't want him to reign over us. And the very next verse after Jesus told that story, it says, after Jesus had said this, he went on ahead to Jerusalem. Now, in part, when you read that parable, there are some confusing elements to it. But when you read it in the context of what's about to take place in Jesus' life, I think it is powerfully prophetic. And again, I don't think Jesus was taken by surprise by the sudden turn of events. And again, it tells us when he came into Jerusalem, Luke 19 and 37, when he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Now, that's fully understandable. Anybody would praise God if they had seen a miracle or better still, if they had received a miracle themselves. 
It is so easy to welcome the miracle worker, but it became obvious, just like the people in the parable that Jesus had told, they did not want a king. They wanted a miracle worker. They didn't want a king. And the sad thing is for us today, we've got to be so careful in our hearts because there's so many people that want the benefits of what Jesus offers, the wonderful promises, but they actually don't want him as king. They don't want him as Lord. I don't want to surrender. I don't want to, you know. Yes, Jesus, I want what you can give me, be it healing, be it whatever. But the whole Lord situation, not sure about that. I don't want a king. I don't want a Lord to rule over our lives. I want a miracle worker to fix my problems. Yes. Or I want a saviour that will give me a ticket for heaven. Yes. But do I want a king? Do I want a Lord to govern my living? And so Jesus, as he arrives in Jerusalem, goes straight to the heart of the people. He went straight to the temple. Most sacred place in Israel. And what does he do? He begins to turn the tables over. That's going to draw some attention. And it tells us that in chapter 20, the chief priests and the teachers of the law and the elders came together to ask him, by what authority are you doing such things? In other words, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? And these men that were a part of the Sanhedrin, this is the Jewish authority, the highest Jewish authority, they were totally infuriated by Jesus. Matthew picks it up, Matthew 26 and 59. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death, but they did not find any. Though many false witnesses came forward, finally two came forward and declared, this fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. And at last they think we've got a charge against him. This is great. He said he's going to destroy the temple. Actually, what he said was, I am able to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. And what the chief priests and Sanhedrin didn't understand was that Jesus wasn't talking about the temple building. He was actually talking about himself. But now they twist this to somehow manufacture of a charge of what we today would call terrorism, destroying the temple in Jerusalem. That was the first charge. <coughs> Then the second charge they came up with was this in verse 63. The high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the son of God. Yes, it is as you say, Jesus replied. But I say to all of you, in the future, you will see the son of man sitting at the right hand of the mighty one and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, He has spoken blasphemy. Why do we need to hear any more witnesses? Look, now you have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? He is worthy of death. They answered. Then they spat in his face. They struck him with their fists. Others slapped him and said, Come on, prophesy if you are the Christ. So the Jewish authorities thought that they had found just cause for Jesus to die. But the problem that they had is that the Jewish authorities actually do not have the power 
to sentence anybody to death. They can't execute anybody. That power, that authority actually belongs to the Roman governor. And in Jerusalem at the time, it was a guy named Pontius Pilate. Uh, Luke 23 and 1, the whole assembly rose and led him off to Pilate. Okay, so they're going to Pilate, the one who has the authority to execute Jesus, but they've got a problem, and the problem is this. They had what they felt was just cause, because number one, he'd threatened to destroy the temple, and number two, he claimed to be God, which is blasphemy. But to the Roman governor, he couldn't actually care less about either of those two things. So when they took Jesus to Pilate, they actually had to change the charges to get Pilate's attention. Luke 23 and 1, Then the whole assembly rose, led him off to Pilate, and they began to accuse him, saying, We have found this man subverting our nation. He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar and claims to be Christ, a king. And they give to Pilate what they think are charges that even the Roman governor can't ignore. He's subverting our nation. He refuses to pay taxes and he claims to be king. But Pilate actually isn't easily fooled. Luke 23 and 4, I find no basis for a charge against this man. In fact, Matthew 27 tells us in verse 18, for he knew that it was out of envy that they handed Jesus over to him. So Pilate is not a fool, but it would appear that he's probably not terribly strong either because instead of making a ruling himself, he finds the perfect opportunity to pass the buck. I don't want to have to deal with this. Pilate is the ruler of Judea, but Jesus is not from Judea. He's from Galilee. And as luck would have it, the ruler of Galilee was visiting Jerusalem at that time. And he is a guy named Herod. So Pilate sends Jesus to Herod so that Herod can then try the case. So Herod questions Jesus. He mocks Jesus. He ridicules Jesus. And the whole time, Jesus says absolutely nothing. So totally mocking Jesus, they put this purple robe on him, making fun of any claim to be king. And then they actually send him back to Pilate. Now Pilate's got a problem. It's landed back on his table. So he calls the Jewish authorities back. Luke 23, 13, Pilate called together the chief priests, the rulers of the people and said to them, you brought me this man as one who was inciting the people to rebellion. I've examined him in your presence and have found no basis for your charges against him. Neither has Herod, for he sent him back to us, as you can see. He has done nothing to deserve death. Therefore, I'll just punish him and then release him. But then Pilate has another ace up his sleeve because there was this custom every Passover that as a kind gesture to the Jewish people, the Roman governor would release a prisoner and let him go free. And Pilate thinks, oh, I've got a great idea. If I present to the crowd the choice of two prisoners, it'll be their choice. They'll have to make the choice. They'll choose which one to release. The choice is theirs. I'm off the hook. 
And I'll make the choice really, really easy for them. It'll be a choice between Jesus and the, the worst prisoner that I can find. And currently it's a guy named Barabbas. Luke 29 and, uh, 23 and 19 tells us Barabbas had been thrown into prison for an insurrection in the city and for murder. And I'm sure Pilate's thinking to himself, oh man, I am so clever. This is, this is flawless. So friends, as a gesture of goodwill, I'm going to release a prisoner to honour your Passover. And you've got a choice of two. Who do you want to be released to be able to freely roam your streets? Do you want Jesus or Barabbas, the murderer, this troublemaker who stirs up rebellion? And Pilate, I'm sure, was fully, fully convinced that people would want Jesus. They don't want Barabbas back on the street. Give us Jesus. So he asked the people, who shall I release to you? And to his amazement, they actually began to say, Barabbas, release to us Barabbas. And it's interesting because at that point, Pilate actually begins to defend Jesus. Why? What's this man done? And they began to say, give us Barabbas. And he's going, well, well what shall I do with this man, Jesus? And the crowd starts chanting, crucify him, crucify him. And again, remember what Jesus said in that last parable. What did the crowd say? We will not have this man reign over us. And then Pilate's wife kind of added fuel to the fire. She came to him and said, I've been having a dream. And in this dream, I was warned, have nothing to do with this man. And Pilate washes his hands in front of the crowd in a gesture to say, it's no longer anything at all to do with me. I'm giving him back to you. This is now mob rule. And he gave Jesus to the soldiers. Now, as we think about the agony of Jesus' crucifixion, what we sometimes gloss over is the fact that the flogging that Jesus received from the soldiers before he was crucified, which was commonplace, was often enough on its own to kill the person to be crucified. In fact, it was only when the supervising centurion kind of looked and made the call and said, that's enough, that the flogging would stop. And Matthew tells us in Matthew 27 and 28, they stripped him, put a scarlet robe on him, then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his hand and knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, King of the Jews, they said, and they spat on him. And he took the staff, and they took the staff and struck him on the head again and again. And after they mocked him, they took off the robe and put his own clothes back on. Then they led him away to crucify him. And Jesus was crucified, but the mocking didn't stop there. The rejection didn't stop there. Mark 15, 29, those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, so you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. If this is the Christ, the King of Israel, let him come down from the cross that we may see and believe and those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. And Mark 15, 37 tells us with a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. 
Now, there was a guy there who was a member of the Sanhedrin. His name was Joseph of Arimathea. He goes to Pilate, the Roman governor, to request Jesus' body that he might be able to give him a proper burial. Now, only four people attended the funeral of Jesus. Joseph of Arimathea, that guy. Then another guy named Nicodemus. And he was the one who helped Joseph roll the stone over the entrance to the tomb. Both of them members of the Sanhedrin. Then there was Mary Magdalene. And there was the mother of Jesus, Mary. And that was it. End of story. But friends, it's not the end of the story, is it? Because if it was, it's just a tragic story. And if that's all there was, just a tragic story, it would have been forgotten, absolutely forgotten in the passage of time. And if that was the end of the story, there's no hope in that story. There's no comfort in that story. There's no encouragement in that story. But without giving the storyline away, which we'll be looking at next week, but maybe you've seen the movie. (laughs) On the Sunday morning, when the women came to the tomb to anoint his body with spices, and to their amazement, the stone was rolled away, and then two men were sitting on the stone dressed in white, and they said, why are you looking for the living among the dead? Why have you come to a tomb? He's not dead. He is risen. Hallelujah. Because it's not the end of the story. And all the players in the story, the disciples, the Sanhedrin, Pilate, Herod, the soldiers, they would have had no idea at all that they were playing a part in the greatest story ever told and the single greatest hope for all of humanity. And here's what the prophet Isaiah wrote centuries before all of this happened. I'm going to read it from the message. Isaiah 53.10 Still, it's what God had in mind all along. To crush him with pain. The plan was that he give himself as an offering for sin so that he'd see life come from it. Life, life and more life. And God's plan will deeply prosper through him out of that terrible travail of soul He'll see that it's worth it and be glad that he did. Through what he experienced, my righteous one, my servant, will make many righteous ones as he himself carries the burden of their sins. Therefore, I'll reward him extravagantly, the best of everything, the highest honours, because he looked death in the face and didn't flinch. Because he embraced the company of the lowest. He took upon his own shoulders the sin of many. He took up the cause of all the black sheep. This is the prophet speaking of the Messiah hundreds of years before he was born. And friends, this story is so incredibly profound. In fact, it is so profound. Nobody could have written this script. Heaven heaven wrote this script. Because historically speaking, the cross may have satisfied this warped sense of justice that the Jewish authorities had, the Sanhedrin had. But friends, so much more significantly, it satisfied the just wrath of a holy God on sin. And Jesus himself, who was without sin, 
was the only one qualified to act as a substitute to face the wrath of God head on. To face the wrath of God on my behalf and your behalf. And that's why if you back up to verse 4 of Isaiah 53, it says, Surely he took our infirmities. He carried our sorrows. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. And I love the fact that there is a lot of us and our and we in that statement. Because the Easter story is not a story about Jesus. Yes, it is. But it's also a story about us. His crucifixion was about you. His crucifixion was about me. It's about our infirmities and our sorrows and our transgressions, our iniquities. It is through him that we're going to find peace. It is through his wounds that we are healed and made whole again. So why is this Easter week? Why is it the week that literally has changed our world? Why is it that billions upon billions of people the world over acknowledge that this story has totally transformed their life? Why is it that for, even, for those who don't even acknowledge Jesus in any way at all, they don't acknowledge His truth, but they'll still close their shops and take a holiday? They'll still shut down their businesses and take a holiday? Jesus still closes schools and governments. And we call it Easter. Because friends, the truth is as shocking and as unjust as Jesus' trial and punishment and crucifixion was, throughout the course of history, there have been countless men and women who have been equally unfairly tried, punished and executed. So why is Jesus' story any different? Well, friends, I think one reason the story in the life of Jesus has impacted the course of human history like no one else is because Jesus did that day what no other man or woman in history could ever do. He opened the gates of heaven and He made it possible for men and women to be wonderfully and rightly reconciled to a holy God. Jesus, blameless, clean and pure, died for your sin, died for my sin. And that's why this week, which is a week that has changed our world, can be an event which changes your life. You see today, you can be forgiven. Not because you deserve it, because you don't deserve it. You can be forgiven because Jesus paid for it. Today, you can be reconciled to God. Not because you deserve it, but because Jesus went to the cross to be able to reconcile you to God. God reaches out to us. And all we're going to do is just simply respond. 
And friends, today you can receive spiritual life. You can receive eternal life. Isaiah 53 and 11, when he sees all that is accomplished by his anguish, he will be satisfied. And because of his experience, my righteous servant will make it possible for many to be counted righteous. For he will bear all their sins. King James says, He saw the travail of his soul and was satisfied. He saw the travail of his soul and was satisfied. That's an incredible statement. That Jesus saw beyond the agony of what was before him. Beyond all the physical and spiritual agony, he saw beyond it. And what he saw satisfied him. What did he see? Well, I think he saw right through the passage of time, even to this very day, to this very place. He saw you, he saw me. And he was satisfied because maybe there's a young person. Maybe there's a man, a woman, a boy, a girl. His life without God doesn't seem to make sense. There's an emptiness, lack of meaning, lack of purpose. No Hosanna. There's a drifting around trying to make sense of things. Jesus looks through the pain, looks through the agony and says, there is a way. There is a way back to God. There is a way for it to be possible for you to know Jesus and be reconciled to God. But the response is up to us. 